beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, friends. This is Michael Benner. Thanks so very much for joining us today for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, heard on KPFK in Southern California at 90.7 FM, live streaming for the world via the Internet at kpfk.org, and, of course, podcast on all podcast platforms. I'm really excited about today's program. We have an interview coming up with a featured guest who is an explorer, a historian, and author of more than a dozen books, who is going to talk to us about an extraordinary archaeological discovery just 25 years ago, a discovery that is truly changing the way we look at our world today, our evolution as human beings, a site so ancient as to not only predate history, but the discovery of the wheel by 6,000 years. We're talking about what appears to be the world's oldest stone temple in southeastern Turkey, a site called Gobekli Tepe. Now, in this brief introduction, I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory, and then we'll introduce our guest. I have a couple of small bits of business. First, I want to thank everyone who made a donation to KPFK in Pacifica during our most recent spring fund drive, which has just concluded. If you made a pledge instead of a donation, we know you'll honor that pledge. But in any event, your support for listener-sponsored free speech radio progressive programming for all of Southern California and via the Internet, indeed, the world itself is most appreciated. Those of you who did make a donation of $25 or more are now voting members of the Pacifica Foundation, and we do have a referendum on the ballot. You should have received your ballot by now and have until July 7th to submit your vote. Well, I think it's inappropriate for me to tell you my feelings of how you should vote on the air. I'll share my feelings with those who read my newsletter. So you can go to the podcast website, theagelesswisdom.com. Scroll to the bottom. You can sign up for the free email newsletter or at my primary site, michaelbenner.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there too. And you can also keep track of what we're doing with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School program, upcoming guests, and you'll have access to the blog as well where we archive all of the newsletters. Now about Gobekli Tepe, let's go back to the Ice Age. The Ice Age ended about 12,000 years ago, approximately 10,000 BC, rather quickly. And because most of the Earth up until that point was frozen, covered in sheets of ice and glaciers. The Goldilocks zone, which really supported temperate life, was a rather thin band around the equator. In the Middle East, this was called the Fertile Crescent. In the middle of the Fertile Crescent is a golden triangle, where it's believed the so-called Garden of Eden and Hanging Gardens of Babylon were located. Gobekli Tepe is a stone monument, a sacred site, that was first built 6,000 years before the invention of the wheel, and 7,000 years before the construction of the Great Pyramids of Giza in Egypt, far older than Stonehenge and Avebury, 8,000 years before the invention of an alphabet, a written language, or the use of numbers. We're talking about an era known as the Neolithic era, when nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes began to settle down and become agrarian, farmers. One of the most curious aspects about Golbeki Tepe is that 
It seems nobody lived here. It was a pilgrimage site on a hill. There are no residences. There is no evidence of cooking horrors or burial grounds. The bones are limited to wild animals, which suggests that the domestication of animals had not yet begun. And yet we see these 10-ton, 16-ton monolithic T-shaped pillars, many of which display on their surface quite remarkable carvings of wild animals, mostly dangerous animals, wild boar, snakes, spiders, some insects, and a few animals that were not dangerous, but objects of the hunt, the gazelle being the most popular. Imagine a series of 20 or more stone circles of T-shaped monoliths, 8 to 10 feet high, in a circle approximately 20 feet in diameter, with two larger stones, approximately 15 feet, also T-shaped boulders, limestone boulders, in the center of each. Perhaps pillars that held up a roof, no one really knows. For Gobekli Tepe was only discovered in 1994 by a German archaeologist named Klaus Schmidt. These stones appear to have been quarried miles away, and since there were no wheels in the minds of those people, obviously dragged to the site, erected, and have withstood the test of time. They're in quite remarkable condition because this site was buried, deliberately refilled, backfilled, such that its existence was erased from the minds of the locals for thousands and thousands of years. So the obvious questions that come to mind, how do nomadic hunter-gatherers who have only stone tools that know nothing of metalworking erect these enormous monuments, these huge limestone blocks, as a temple? Which, by the way, seem also to some to have some astronomical significance, particularly to the star Sirius, which first appeared in the skies above southeastern Turkey approximately 9300 B.C. So this is just about the time that these hunter-gatherers decided they were going to build this monument and maybe begin to settle down into an agrarian society that farmed the land, mostly grains and cereals, domesticated animals, and began to map the stars. So-called modern man. Now, what I think is particularly interesting about this, and my guest, Andrew Collins, is going to speak to it, is this seems to coincide with biblical references. And I say the Bible. I'm talking about books that are in the Apocrypha, religious documents that have been excluded from what today we think of as the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are several books of Enoch that refer to the Watchers, a race of beings, perhaps humanoid, or, according to the beliefs of many scholars, archangels, descending from the skies with a technology unknown to mortals of the day. And this, of course, touches on the ancient alien concepts in Eric von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods. Where did these nomadic hunter-gatherers get the technology to build such a temple, to carve into limestone rock with such detail and artistry, such craftsmanship, the images of these wild animals? And interestingly, as the civilization progressed, as the monument was built on top of itself layer by layer, the craftsmanship and artistry declined. The most impressive monuments and the best artwork is found at the deepest levels. Makes you wonder exactly what's going on and hopefully sets you up for the program to follow. Let me remind you, this is a program about consciousness, about self-awareness, about intelligence and understanding. This is not a program devoted to archaeology, architecture, or geology for that matter. The interface of consciousness and hard science is known as quantum physics. In quantum physics, the study of the ultimate grittiness of the universe, the finest, tiniest little subatomic particles, we find that we cannot disconnect awareness 
from the behavior of these particles. We find electrons and photons and quarks behaving like particles of matter when observed, yet behaving like fields of energy when they are not, a phenomenon known as the observer effect. We've had guests in the past, and I'm sure we will again in the future, who talk about the quantum physics principle known as entanglement, the relationship of objects that is maintained at a distance a connection faster than the speed of light, a connection that appears to stand outside of time and space. And increasingly, it seems apparent that consciousness does not arise from brain chemistry or any other physical phenomena, but quite the contrary, that consciousness or awareness is fundamental to the existence of what appears to be a solid material world of separated forms. And so it is also increasingly apparent that we are not the vehicle that we inhabit. We are the awareness, not simply our thoughts and feelings, but our awareness of thought and feeling, awareness of our intention, awareness of our ability with a little training to surpass empathy and compassion to psychic levels of telepathy, clairvoyance, often called in these days remote viewing, all based on the idea that there is one thing at work, one energy field, appearing as countless forms, a myriad of diverse objects, and yet behind it all, some sort of energy, an energy that is conscious, aware of itself to varying degrees. Most animals are not as self-aware as human beings. It may be that whales and dolphins and certain other species are more advanced and more self-aware than humans. They certainly don't cause pollution, fight wars, and argue about whose god is better. Plants are self-aware. They react. They respond to their environment. They propagate and grow, though not as aware, it seems, as animals. Even single-celled microorganisms, slime mold, paramecium, and amoeba have demonstrated an ability to solve the shortest path to food problem in a microscopic maze. A single-cell creature with no brain, no nervous system, smaller than the nerve itself, has awareness. It learns, it remembers, it understands on some microscopic level. Could it be that the entire universe is immersed in an ocean of consciousness, connected in spite of the fact that, like a fish in water, we're unaware of the medium in which we exist? One of the most exciting things about the era in which we live is that humanity is beginning to discover itself, to become aware of awareness, conscious of consciousness, to begin to notice what we notice, a mindful self-examination of why we think, feel, and act the way we do. Stay tuned. I'll introduce my guest right after this short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. <laughs> KPFK's Spring Fun Drive is over and we are now back to regular programming. Yes, it has been a long one. And we thank you so much for your heroic support and contributions, large and small. That's it. We just want to acknowledge you and say thank you. It's the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on your radio at 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for uh, joining us today. Great interview coming up with Andrew Collins, the author of uh, more than a dozen books. One in particular we're going to feature today, and that's his book on ancient archaeology and architecture, if you will, these great stone monoliths from time out of mind, actually, and one in particular, Gobekli Tepe, which is known 
by his book's subtitle as The Genesis of the Gods. It's probably the oldest stone temple on earth, going back 12,000 years. That's older than Stonehenge, older than the pyramids, of course. And it's a pleasure to have him with us. We're also going to talk about, because of the nature of this program, consciousness and intelligence. Who are we? And this question about being alone in the universe is very current as we anticipate the uh, UFO report that's coming out of the Pentagon later this month. So, Andrew Collins, uh, good afternoon from Los Angeles, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Yes, I mean, welcome from the UK. I'm, I'm glad to be on here, and I look forward to our conversation. We have this event coming up in a couple of weeks called Contact in the Desert. This is something that started a few years ago here in Southern California. And now, of course, because of COVID, it's online. But it's also grown to more than 70 speakers. You're one of the primary speakers for Contact in the Desert. If I can sort of jump ahead of our whole topic, and then maybe we'll work our way back a little bit. What do UFOs and the idea of galactic consciousness, if I can use that phrase, have to do with these ancient archaeological sites like Gobekli Tepe? Well, uh, I mean, Gobekli Tepe, as you said, is arguably the oldest stone temple complex in the world. I mean, it's a series of uh, essentially circular uh, stone circles each of which, uh, each of the stones being covered in these beautiful carved animals and birds and human forms. Um, and it was done by a culture that was not even thought capable of creating this type of sophisticated monument until just a few years ago. And this is in southeast Turkey, the very area um, which I'd already written in one of my books was where you would find evidence, the smoking gun of the foundations of our own civilization. Uh, and I wrote that in the mid-1990s at the exact time that the first spade was going into the ground at Gebekli Tepe. Um, so I was proof correct with that. And that's one of the reasons why I went on to write the book that you mentioned, which is um, Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, which tried to put into perspective not only the monument itself and its discovery, but it's context to do with myths and legends because in the same area you have stories about these mythical um, groups of individuals that handed uh, civilization to us mortal kind um, with names like the Watchers, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, um, and the Immortals, um, which is the name that, that's given to them in Iranian uh, myth and legend. Um, and all of these seem to relate to the foundation point of, you know, our civilization at a place that is generally referred to as the cradle of civilization. That cradle is where Gobekli Tepe is today. So how does any of this, and of course places like Stonehenge in my own country of, of, of England or, you know, any of the other incredible ancient prehistoric and sacred monuments of the world, what have they got to do with UFOs? Well, I think the easy answer is that back in the 1960s, books, books started to appear that questioned the technology of a lot of these, um, these ancient cultures. Um, books like uh, Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken, a, a Swiss author who wrote this book. Uh, it came out, it was an international bestseller, and it started the whole idea of what was then known as the ancient astronauts theory. Uh, and this was the idea that aliens in the past may have come down and given us or aided our technologies that allowed us to create things like the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge, the Nazca Lines, the, um, you know, the, the, the Colossi of, of Easter Island, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, what von Daniken was doing, it wasn't so much telling us that this was the case. He was posing questions. He was saying that the sophistication of these ancient civilizations could not be explained by the current archaeological paradigms and that there must be other answers. So is it possible that we were helped by 
aliens, essentially. And of course, this has developed since that time into what we would today refer to as the ancient aliens theory, of which, you know, we have the TV, the, the ever successful TV show of that name, ancient aliens, of which, you know, I, I am one of the, the contributors of. Um, and, you know, it's the idea that if we look at evidence of the past, we will find that there is evidence of aliens amongst us. So that's essentially the connection with ancient civilizations. Now, whether that is right or wrong is a matter of debate. But then the question becomes, what is an alien? I mean, in the past, let's say in the 60s and the 70s, and in many ways to this day, the idea has been that they were spacemen from another planet, from another star system, and that they would come down in their spaceships, they would land, they would get out, and they would interact with humanity, then get back into their craft and go off. That was the, 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 the common view of what an alien has been. But what is becoming apparent is that this is a pretty naive way of looking at things. Nobody is saying that physical aliens have not been in here in the past. I mean, for instance, the well-known cosmologist and astronomer um, Carl Sagan, for instance, in a scientific paper in 1964, said that it was inevitable that in the past we were visited on many occasions by extraterrestrials. He said this in a scientific paper. And this was long before um, Eric von Daniken wrote his book, Chariots of the Gods. So if Carl Sagan says, says this, I think we should take this theory very seriously indeed. But once again, I ask the question, who are the true ancient aliens? And I think that what we're beginning to realize is that most UFOs, if they are genuine, are not simply physical nuts and bolts spacecraft. They are objects that manifest into our world almost out of nowhere and appear very often as light to start with. And these light balls or objects or fogs or environments would then allow the manifestation of more physical objects, structured craft, if you like, to manifest out of them and then to exist in our realm for a temporary period, maybe a few minutes, an hour, something like that, before essentially vanishing back from whence they came. In other words, it's almost like they, they entered into our reality out of nowhere and then exited it in the same way. And what we are dealing with here is intelligences that seem to be not so much crossing vast vistas of space, but are popping out of parallel dimensions, parallel realms, parallel universes, um, and are using uh, a realm of physics which we barely not only can comprehend at this time, but will never really fully understand because it seems to be multidimensional in nature. And what I mean by that is that we live in three dimensions of space and one of time. Um, you know, the, the, the dimensions of space are relate to um, coordinates, coordinates of space, like length, breadth, and width. I mean, essentially, that, that's it. Whereas, obviously, time runs from the past to the present and future. That, in theory, is the, um, the, the, the mainstay of, physical, of, of the physics of, of the universe. But there is a lot to suggest that there are other dimensions as well that coexist with those and that under some circumstances they can open up, unfurl to interact with us. And one of the environments that they seem to be able to, um, to do this, these other dimensions, is plasma. What is plasma, you might say? Well, plasma makes up about 99% of the universe. It's the light from the sun. It's the light from our from 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 television screens. It, it's it's the light from lightning, um, and and things like um, you know comets and things like that. And this can be produced when gas is heated, excited to such a level that it changes its whole state of existence into something known as plasma. Um, and this is in itself a form of light, a creation, an environment. And as early as the 1950s and 60s, 
um, quantum physicists like David Bowen, who was an American who came over to Britain and studied at Bristol University, began to believe that within plasma environments, intelligences seem to be able to manifest, coming from what he referred to as a deeper level of existence, what he called the implicate order, uh, and which is today, today known as the pre-space, something that's outside of normal space-time. And it's, this is the medium through which these, these energies and information would seem to be able to move seamlessly and seemingly instantly from one physical environment into another by utilizing multiple dimensions. Andrew, human beings seem to be so egocentric that uh, we seem to have no problem believing in invisible sky gods. But when we're faced with these films that have been released of American Navy fighter pilots locking on to unidentified flying objects, or they're called now by the Pentagon aerial phenomena, we dismiss that. Oh, well, that couldn't be, right? Or somebody will look at these monolithic civilizations that have been discovered in the Middle East, like Gobekli Tepe, and just because they can't get their head around it, they don't have any exposure to it in their history or our sense of culture, which is so, again, egocentric, it's, it just often gets dismissed. I'm even intrigued when I have on occasion suggested to people that we already live in outer space and they get this blank look on their face like, well, what do you mean outer space? We're not in outer space. Outer space is somewhere else. You know, as if there's this great detachment that we just can't seem to comprehend the true continuity that we're talking about. Your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously... We are just like a, a tiny pinpoint uh, in the middle of, well, not in the middle, but somewhere within what we call the Milky Way galaxy. Um, so in theory, we're a tiny insignificant point with, within it. But of course, on a great many of the planets in distant star systems, they will be inhabited. Um, but the question then becomes, are the these intelligences, these beings interacting with us directly? You know, or is there some other means of communication, something that's far more easier? Because as Carl Sagan said, I mean, the, the nearest star to us is about four light years away, which that means that if you travel at the speed of light, that any message, for instance, from here to there would take four years to go that distance. And then obviously if, if an alien civilization wanted to reply to that message, it would take another four years to get back to here. Now, that's that's just so slow, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you would have thought that the, you know, the, the mechanics of the universe would have built in a much faster way of communication across such vast vistas of space, and there is. And that is what we know as quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is the idea that particles, when they are created, can be created as twins, um, and that this goes on all of the time, and that when these subatomic particles, you know, veer into different directions, it doesn't matter how far away they get, they still have an instant form of communication between them. If you tweak one, the other will, will, will spin in an equal and opposite direction. And although this might be seen as something that only occurs on a subatomic level, just recently, uh, scientists have been able to achieve this at what they call a macrocosmic level, in other words, you know, in the physical world. Um, and what this is showing is that whole systems of subatomic particles in one place, let's say within my head, can interact and communicate instantaneously with whole systems of twin particles in somebody else's head and create what we would know as telepathy or mind over matter. And if that's the case, there is nothing to stop communication going on between extraterrestrials that are on a distant star system and our own minds um, and us receiving information and acting upon that in some way. So in other words, this becomes another possibility of how ancient aliens, ancient astronauts might have affected us 
to create ancient monuments like the Great Pyramid or Stonehenge in the past. It seems like the speed of light may be a barrier like the four-minute mile that uh, we're not even imagining that we could somehow go beyond that. But the study of consciousness that unifies metaphysics and quantum physics uh, seems to suggest that there are paths outside of space and time. I sometimes use as an allegory the fact that this radio station exists at a certain point on the FM dial, and if we turn the dial, the tuner, we find that on other frequencies there are entirely different sets of information, music over here, a news program up the dial, and maybe what we call physical space and time is just a particular matrix of frequencies on the dial, and there's so much more that we're not aware of. I think we need to begin to consider that entanglement, for example, you're saying not only of particles but of minds, really, or entanglement of hearts, as this touches on the nature of love, not merely as an emotion, but a level of understanding, a degree of intelligence or awareness. That's my sense of love. It goes way beyond some emotional attraction. To this whole idea that consciousness is fundamental to everything. I mean, could this be the ground of being, awareness? Uh, well, qu quantum entanglement, in my opinion, is one of the... It, it, one of the keys of understanding the physical universe. And I only discovered just today when I was listening to uh, a, um, uh, another podcast that uh, the, the Max Planck, you know, one of the pioneers of quantum physics, was the first person, well, I say the first, was certainly a noted person to say that human consciousness or consciousness as, as, as a whole is behind the fabric of the universe itself. And, yeah, when I heard this, I thought, that's absolutely correct, because that's exactly what I have concluded myself. And I think that without consciousness in the universe, it would collapse into basically back into subatomic particles. We hold it together with our thoughts, with our minds, with what I would call the entanglement of all. Everything is entangled, not just in the present, but also in the past and in the future, because outside of uh, physical reality, there is no time. Time, as we understand it, ceases to exist on a subatomic level. So entanglement occurs not just in the, the here and the now, but when you have those two particles entangled together, one could go off into the future and one could go off into the past, and they would still be linked. And, of course, this allows us... Uh, an explanation of precognition or premonitions, the idea that we can link to future events or people of the past might be able to have had, you know, premonitions, omens, signs, things like that of, of future events because in some way they were entangled either with themselves in the future or with a collective of humanity in the future that allows that information to be sent back so that it can be utilized in a practical manner. I need to take a short break, Andrew, but when we come back, I want to go to the hard archaeology <laughs> of these monolithic civilizations, in particular Gobekli Tepe, but there are others, and as an explorer and a historian, uh, you've been to these places, you've touch these stones. You've seen these remarkably detailed carvings in these T-shaped monoliths that go back to Tepe. And, and I'd like to hear more about your experience in Turkey. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. My guest today is Andrew Collins, and we'll have more 
right after this. This is KPFK. Because she understood her language, the next day she quit the job. Took it off the table. The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. That's fantastic. That's interesting. I love it. It really does. It really does show you answers to things. Because she understood the dream, she uh, acted on it like the next morning. How can we expedite that and remember our dreams more? The Aware Show with Lisa Gar. Wednesday and Thursday afternoons at 1. This is KPFK. My guest on The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School today is an author of more than a dozen books, one in particular we're talking about, but all of his books touch on these subjects in similar ways. Gobekli Tepe is an ancient, probably the oldest stone temple ever discovered on Earth, and it's far older than the pyramids, older even than Stonehenge, which is very crude uh, monument. And programs like Ancient Aliens, I think, has caused many people who discover these television programs about Von Daniken's work and the archaeology that has followed in the last couple of decades are aware of these stunning discoveries and, and this idea that human civilization goes back to not only prehistoric, but I would say even pre-biblical times. Andrew, when you talk about the people who must have made Gobekli Tepe somehow, these 10, 20-ton blocks of stone that are perfectly carved with these animal engravings on them, these be- this beautiful artwork. And, and we've heard again about these other sites around the world that, I mean, even the blocks of uh, the pyramids at Giza, the way they're cut, the way they fit. It's like technology that we can barely imagine. It's not clear that we could even do this today. And, and you you mentioned Easter Island, which is in the in the middle of nowhere out in the Pacific Ocean, but uh, throughout the Middle East and into Asia as well, we see these same things. When I say pre-biblical, there are these books in the Apocrypha, not normally included in the Bible, like the Book of Enoch, that talks about the Watchers and these archangels that may have come to earth and mated with human women. And I'm wondering if you can give us a thumbnail of this truly ancient history and how architecture is bearing out stories like the Great Flood, for example, or the Watchers of the Book of Enoch. Well, I think to do this, we we do need to go to Gobekli Tepe itself. I mean, this is 7,000 years before the Great Pyramid, a similar age before Stonehenge. Um, and it, it was created at a time when we were just coming out of the end of the last ice age. In theory, the only people that existed in Turkey at that time were so-called hunter-gatherers, you know, either nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples that would have had a a lifestyle whereby they would have, you know, stayed for a while, moved on, to new hunting grounds, stayed there in a cyclic thing. That's it. That That's what their life. I mean, they would have had their close f- friends and family. They would have worked together as a social unit. And that would have basically been it, really. There was, in theory, no social organization. But there was because on oh, a mountaintop in southeast Turkey, you've got Gebekli Tepe. I mean, this must have involved the bringing together of hundreds, if not thousands of people not only to carve out these stones, erect them, put them in place, create these beautiful monuments, then have them maintained by priests across periods of hundreds of years. And, and I mean, you're, you're talking about a type of organisation which you would not see again until the rise of the Sumerian civilization in what is today Iraq or indeed the Egyptians in Egypt itself. So what the hell was going on up there? And I think a lot of it is down to necessity of what was going on because there's good evidence to suggest the end of the last ice age came about through a comet impact. 
uh, an event that devastated the Northern Hemisphere um, and left everybody worried that the world would indeed end. So that every time a comet would appear in the sky, people would be in fear that uh, the world would quite literally come to an end. And it is important to remember that they would have seen comets as the tails of supernatural creatures in the sky, uh, most obviously large canines, um, you know, wolves, foxes, um, you know, dogs of, of whatever kind they imagined, that were seen as like supernatural tricksters, tricksters that had the ability to quite literally destroy the world. Uh, they're found in every culture around the world. And so something had to happen because there was no sort of um, psychoanalyst that you could go to um, or therapist that you could go to uh, in those days. So I think what happened is that the shamans of the community, those that believed that they could uh, go into altered states of consciousness and communicate with these supernatural creatures that, you know, that troubled the world, that they basically said, look, you know, if, if you want us to try and stop this threat, we need you to create a suitable monument, one that's going to allow us to interface, to interact with the sky world where these supernatural creatures appear um, so that we can appease them, we can talk them out of destroying the world. Uh, and I think that these priests were some kind of elite that probably entered into the area of southeast Turkey um, and brought together all of the local people. Now, I think that they came from the north, and there is quite strong evidence of this, beyond the Caucasus on the Russian steppe, uh, whether it be within you know, central Russia or much further east, as far as the Ural Mountains and even into Siberia, because it's in this region that we've got the highest level of sophistication and culture prior to the time of Gobekli Tepe. Um, and what happened was that uh, during the Ice Age, a lot of these peoples were being pushed further and further south. So eventually they would end up in places like, you know, Turkey, uh, which, you know, geographically is Anatolia. Um, and, you know, they would come to influence and come to bear on the, the local inhabitants of this region. And I think this is what happened. So that they created Gebekli Tepe almost like a stargate, if you like to allow them easy access, quick access, instant access to the sky world so that they could deal with the supernatural creatures every time a comet appeared. And this was the idea that I put in my book, Genesis of the Gods. And what I said was that the memory of these individuals, these priests, these shamans, who probably looked different to the locals, that I think that they were probably much taller um, their complexion was different. Um, they were remembered by these peoples of the region as almost supernatural themselves in nature. In other words, they saw them as legendary, almost godlike figures. And eventually, the oral stories relating to these these people, these founders of civilization, if you like, would become the archangels and the watchers of the book of Enoch. They would become the Anunnaki that are talked about in the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian texts that were said to have gifted humanity civilization. They would have become the immortals of Iranian tradition who played exactly the same role. And the German archaeologist who discovered Gebekli Tepe was Professor Klaus Schmidt. And he was a very clever man, wrote an incredible book on Gobekli Tepe before he sadly died a few years ago. Um, and in this, he actually states that he believed that the Anunnaki were responsible for the creation of Gobekli Tepe. And separately, he suggested that the Watchers were also one of the names that, that were given to the builders of Gobekli Tepe. So, you know, what I had said myself as early as 1996 in a book called From the Ashes of Angels, which talks in depth about the Book of Enoch and who the Watchers are, the Nephilim, which I see as flesh and blood human beings. They're not aliens or, 
you know, supernatural creatures. They're flesh and blood people, no different to you or I. These were the true founders of civilization. They were the ones that gave us the knowledge and the sophistication to be able to create civilizations like, you know, Samaria, Babylonia, um, you know, Egypt, Indus Valley, etc., etc. Of course, we have these biblical accounts of what seem to be interdimensional or extraterrestrial craft. There are accounts in the 18th and 19th centuries of such, but it certainly appears that since the mid-1940s and the detonation of nuclear weapons, that uh, all of these encounters begin to accelerate. I'm wondering if you share that view. Do you think we may have done some serious uh, temporal damage when we started setting off nukes in the 40s? Uh, I, I think that the answer is yes, in the sense that there's no question that immediately following those first detonations, uh, what we'd call flying saucers or UFOs appear in our skies for the first time in the modern era, okay? Um, So we could have triggered something, something that affected the electromagnetic um, fields of the Earth that could have triggered into manifestation these plasma environments that more easily allowed the structured craft to pierce through into our reality. Yes, I think that that's there. I don't think it can be denied or taken off the table. However, I think it's important to remember that, just as you said, there are accounts of the appearances of mysterious light, balls of fire, um, you know, strange objects that go back many hundreds, if not thousands of years. They're in the Bible, for instance. You know, you've got things like Ezekiel's vision of this strange object of wheels within wheels within which is the throne of God and it shone out this fire the glory of God etc etc I mean if this wasn't simply some kind of altered state vision then clearly Ezekiel was seeing something uh, quite extraordinary quite magnificent Um, and then you've got to look at people like Moses uh, on the mountaintops before he firstly communicated with God for the first time uh, God appears to him, Yahweh appears in the form of this blinding light um, that we interpret in terms of something like the burning bush, but it wasn't. It was a blinding light that appeared to him, manifested in front of him, and gave him instructions. In other words, he heard words in his head. And then later, he goes up Mount Sinai and not only receives the Ten Commandments with this ball of light, this, this energy, this form in front of him, But this energy source gives Moses instructions on how to create the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant is a direct communicator with God in the sense that, you know, it was placed in this thing called the tabernacle, which like guarded its energies and only the high priest or Moses could could actually go up and, 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 and speak to God and above the tabernacle would appear at night these huge manifestations of light and flame, which unquestionably are what we would call plasma today, plasma objects. And quite clearly that the ark is something that was made to create this type of phenomena and through it interact with human consciousness to give this information, this knowledge, to allow us to progress, to evolve um, to develop the human thought that allowed the creation of civilization. Well, I think the fact that we still have enough nuclear weapons on this planet to blow ourselves to oblivion 20 times over, not to mention that just uh, one or two of them could trigger a nuclear winter that could create extinction. If there is a lesson in global warming and our understanding of ecology and the environment, it's that everything touches everything else. And this is, again, part of an extension of what it means to understand consciousness. It's that field that embraces all things to the exclusion of no thing. So we've begun to understand that while the world appears to be very detached and separate, 
the common view of humanity being like each of us a billiard ball on a table bouncing around in this world of form, then in fact, from an energy point of view, we're talking about a unified field. We're all part of one field. And so if we're going to despoil this planet, this understanding of consciousness is fundamental suggests that that destruction may not be limited to this planet. It may include our solar system, our corner of the galaxy. Indeed, when you begin to consider multiple dimensions and interdimensional theories, who knows the damage we're doing on a number of levels. And the only solution is consciousness. There is no political or social solution to this. It's a matter of waking up and becoming aware of the universe is one thing, it seems to me. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a question of, of where humanity is going. Um, and some people would look at you know the events of the world right now and think that that could be oblivion. But I, I think that ultimately there's going to be like an eschatonic point, a point of coming together of all different ideas that's going to have to come up with solutions. And the, solu- the main solution that we will need is to get off this planet um, because sooner or later, you know, we're going to do so much damage to this planet or there's going to be a threat to this planet from anything from a, a you know, a comet impact again to a supernova event or something like this that's going to necessitate us to go to Earth 2.0. Um, and so we have got to bring together everything. And the strange thing is, is it's only at times of crisis that very often we make great leaps forward. This happened, for instance, you know, at the time of the Second World War. I mean, we were forced to have to invent, to create, and to move forward at a very fast pace. And I think that suddenly, if the Earth was under some kind of threat, we would have to work together to do that very quickly. Um, and that's going to be, I think, a, a major eschatonic point in the future. But beyond that is this relationship with higher intelligences, non-human intelligences, trans-dimensional intelligences, extraterrestrial intelligences, and how do we communicate with them? You know, is is it something that we're going to be able to do simply by using vocal languages that, that like we are having this interview now, I think the chances are, no, it's not going to happen that way. I think that it's all going to happen through consciousness and that probably quite a lot of us are already being influenced by these outside intelligences. Um, unfortunately, probably some people won't even be able to control that and they're probably, you know, thought of as a psychotic or, you know, got neurosis of some description. But I think that we need to accept the possibility that we can communicate with these intelligences using our mind, using psychic abilities, which we all have. I mean, you know, some people are better than others, but we all have the ability to connect and communicate using human consciousness. And this is something that's gone on so much in the past um, that I think that it has helped and aided the rise of civilization because it doesn't really matter what names you give these intelligences. I mean, we currently see them as extraterrestrials or spacemen or whatever, but in the past they were angels, they were mortals, they were spirits, they were great ancestors, um, and all of these, all of the communications with them may well be part of a bigger whole of allowing us to evolve and move forward through such non-human intelligence communications. We should mention that uh, you've touched on it a couple of times, the Van Daniken breakthrough of Chariot of the Gods a couple of decades ago is really an important uh, connection. And besides yourself, he's going to be part of this upcoming uh, conference. This is the biggest UFO conference in the world, over 70 speakers. There's presentations, there's workshops, there's panel discussions, And, of course, it's all online, so people all over the world can tune in for one-day pass or the whole thing. So I want to give you a chance to give the web address where people can 
find out more. It's coming up in a week or two, I think, the end of June, the 25th. 25th, 26th, that, that, that sort of weekend. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, from my point of view, um, if you want to know anything about me, um, any of my books, the tours that we're doing to uh, Egypt and Turkey in 2022, uh, then it's andrewcollins.com, all as it sounds, andrewcollins.com. And there are links there through to contact in the desert, um, you know, where to get tickets for the event. Uh, my lecture will be about most of what we've talked about today, but in much greater depth and how we can communicate with these intelligences. And the key to that is sound, the use of sound, not vocal sound, but very low frequency sound. But you'll know what I mean when you hear my lecture. Well, that's like an entree to a whole whole other program. I was thinking if we had the time, I'd like to talk to you about meditation and the nature of intuition, because if we're going to open ourselves to the possibility of this galactic communication, it's not going to be with logic in normal states of mind. We have to relax and quiet that egoic nature and listen very carefully. And we open ourselves in these altered states to these epiphanies, these little mini revelations these bigger pictures, you know, the whole enchilada where (laughs) all the pieces fall together and things begin to make sense. And then you talk to other women and men who are doing the same thing, and they're arriving at a lot of the same insights and understanding. And that, to me, is very exciting. It occurred to me just the other day that nobody could meditate and support fascism or militarism or not be concerned about the environment there is a set of values and ethics that goes with being more aware. That's really what causes me to be so excited about the opportunity to to do a radio show like this, is to encourage people to meditate and explore altered states and open their intuition to new ways of thinking. That's the paradigm shift that we're demanding. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've I've been working with psychics, for you know three or four decades and some of my closest friends are the best psychics I've, I've i've ever worked with and you know these are not people that caught any kind of publicity or attention they you know they just happen to have the ability and over that period we fine-tuned the way that we can not only uh, dip into the past and try and seek information you know from ancient cultures ancient peoples but also any intelligences that we feel might have been responsible for human evolution and may still be impacting upon humanity today and you know it has to be fine-tuned you know you can't just sit down and you know close your eyes and expect to communicate it doesn't really work that way it can occur spontaneously sometimes it can occur in dreams or in visions or in altered states that are induced or otherwise but if you're just doing simple meditations there are ways of achieving it it's not that difficult it's really not that difficult but the most important thing is belief belief in what you are doing and that belief comes from an understanding of human consciousness andrew collins i can't thank you enough for taking the time from your busy schedule. And I know you are a busy man to be with us here in Los Angeles on KPFK. I look forward to hearing your presentation on the Contact in the Desert event. And uh, I will continue to follow your writing and your career. And I presume you have many more books in you yet. So. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, the, the next book uh, is out uh, later this year. It's called Origins of the Gods. And although that might sound a lot like Chariots of the Gods, uh, there's a reason, because the foreword of this book is actually written by Eric von Daniken, who, you know, even the, who not only is still alive, but his ideas relating to who those ancient astronauts were is itself beginning to change. You know, he doesn't just see them as, as physical entities, but also possibly multidimensional entities as well. And that, of course, is what the book is about. That's exciting. Very exciting. 
You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. We're here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock Pacific Time, 20 hours GMT or UTC, and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. This show is also podcast as the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on all podcast platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you'll make it a habit to listen live. Join the, the group mind when, when we're live, Tuesdays at 1 o'clock California time. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about me at michaelbenner.com. The podcast page is theagelesswisdom.com. Be gentle. Hi.